you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. Studios. Well, you're in it right now. This is a funny room. This is a room that maybe you'd get inspiration in. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm John Horn. Today on the show, two directors, Judd Apatow and Kira Sedgwick. I talked to Apatow about the Writers Guild of America negotiations, his warning on the bleak future for WGA members if things don't change, and what his daughters really think of his jokes. It's not pretty. Later on, Kira Sedgwick, known for acting roles in TNT's The Closer and countless films. Now she's in the director's chair with her film, Space Oddity. And do movies that feature people of color make more money? We have the numbers. But first, you might know him from Bridesmaids, 40-Year-Old Virgin, a lot of other movies, a lot of good TV shows, Freaks and Geeks, Judd Apatow. The Writers Guild has just opened negotiations with the producers, TV and film producers. You're a member of the Writers Guild. Have you paid attention to the Writers Guild negotiations? I can't say I've paid granular attention to it. I'm certainly aware of what all the issues are. They're very concerning. And as someone at the Directors Guild explained to me, it's impossible to negotiate when you have none of the numbers and data to have this negotiation. If you don't know how many people are watching anything, how can you figure out what anything's worth? That is true of streamers, right? I mean, we have the Netflix top 10, and I guess if you're not on it, you know that it's not a runaway hit, but you could be number 11. I think it's tricky. I don't know uh, how they're gonna figure it out because there's so many different entities who have different theories about all of this. But clearly it's moving in the worst possible direction and the short-sightedness of most of these corporations is in the fact that they don't realize that they will eliminate their workforce. People won't go into writing anymore. I mean, if you can't afford to live, uh, you're going to lose brilliant people because they'll just say, I'll just go create video games or they'll just do something else. And that's what, what's scary. You could lose a whole generation of people because they're like, I can't make a living if I work on one show a year and it's eight episodes. Mm-hmm. Say you get paid 10 grand an episode and they make eight episodes and you make 80 grand and then you give, you know, 30, 40% to taxes and your representation. I mean, you can't really survive in, in Los Angeles on, you know, 25 grand after all your, uh, your payments. The last time I spent a lot of time with you was way back in 2005. You were making 40-Year-Old Virgin, and the studio thought the movie was a little long. It was 116 minutes as released. Uh, John Wick, the new John Wick, two hours and 50 minutes. Babylon, three hours and nine minutes. Avatar, uh, Way of Water, three hours and 12 minutes. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, two hours and 41 minutes. Even Top Gun Maverick is over two hours. 
and your movie was too long at 116 minutes. And you're saying I'm a visionary, and I agree. I agree. I, I was fighting for longer movies. I mean, if it's t hard to get people out of the house, they might as well stay there once they get out of the house. But uh, it is it is a funny thing. I mean, for me personally, if a movie's good, I don't really care about the length that much. And if it's bad, the shortest possible movie is the longest movie you've ever <laughs> you've ever sat through. And it's hard for me to tell for myself for my movies because I never get to watch them fresh to understand what the experience of it is. You know, when I watch movies, uh, I if I'm pulled in, I kind of don't want it to end. Are you able to watch a movie as a moviegoer or is your mind trying to dissect it and say, I wonder what's happening with that character? Are you able to actually disappear into a movie? Yeah, I can. I remember I was watching Babylon and maybe 15 minutes in, I thought, oh, I see what he's doing. And I gave myself over to it completely and just laughed my ass off and had a great time and really enjoyed the movie. I'm not one of those people that's like, where did they put the trucks? For this shot where wow they must have put down a lot of track <laughs> to get this I, I i'm pretty quick to lose all uh of my filmmaker knowledge which is not much i'm the father to an 18 year old and a 22 year old and it wasn't that long ago where they started telling me no dad that's not how it works or that's not right your kids probably do the same thing but do they also do it in terms of the industry because they are like you part of that world and do they have a different perspective are they teaching you something about how the world has changed in terms of content content creation and the audience well it's hard for me because anytime i try out any joke on my kids they always tell me not to say it anything i say i could try any joke on them it doesn't matter it doesn't even have to be edgy i'll just say is this funny and they always go no <laughs> i just got a blanket 100 no. never nothing has ever been funny ever i've never tried out a joke on them where they encouraged me they're just seem semi-horrified that i'm even speaking publicly <laughs> that said what do you learn from them i think we, we talk a lot about doing work that you're passionate about not doing work just to get a job I mean, one thing that I've always been proud of is everything, you know, on my IMDb or whatever is something that I really tried hard to make amazing. And sometimes I got closer to the mark than other times, but I didn't do anything for, for money. I, I really did do everything based on my love for the material or the performers. And that's what I say to them. You have to find a reason to be in the arts and it's because you... You know, you have something to say or you want to help someone express what they have to say that you're inspired by. And that's the most important aspect of it, because as a profession, it's a very difficult profession and it, the, the ground is always shifting and it definitely ebbs and flows and you have good years and terrible years. So the only thing that makes it worthwhile is that you care about what you're putting into the world. Oh, look, Aaron, they're fighting. You want to be in the fight? Yeah, you like that? Hey. Yeah, I can be tough. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can be tough oh, like your boys. Like do? Stop yeah. Like oh, that's you. what you like, huh? Oh, now you're yeah, on my okay. blanket, bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah get on oh, my blanket, now I'm on bro. Blanket. Oh, now you want yeah, on my big yeah. blanket. So, Kamel Nanjiani's film, The Big Sick, that he did with Emily V. Gordon, is not only topical, but also successful. Bros is topical, but not successful. People didn't go see it. And Billy Eichner said 
in social media, even with glowing reviews, great Rotten Tomatoes scores, an A cinema score, etc., straight people, especially in certain parts of the country, just didn't show up for bros. And that's disappointing, but it is what it is. And do you buy that? I knew what our grosses were, so it's not, you can't say they did show up uh, in the numbers that we hoped that they would show up in. I don't know if you could define exactly who didn't show up, but I think the issue was, you know, it's been hard to sell comedies in the post-pandemic era for all sorts of reasons. They're not making a lot of comedies, so the audience isn't trained to want to go see comedies. And then on top of that, you have subject matter that is new for some people that maybe they think, yeah, I'd see that, but maybe I'll just wait till it's on Peacock. It doesn't mean that people aren't really interested because it's a gigantic hit digitally and on streaming. And who knows, maybe some people just felt like they would uh, wait. And, and people wait for all sorts of movies that don't have challenging subject matter. They just go, yeah, that's going to be on TV in six weeks. Yeah. And that's one of the issues is when everything's going to be on TV in six weeks, you know, maybe you'll say, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to watch a, a football game instead. So it's, it's very competitive. And, and that was a heartbreaker that it didn't do better because it's as strong as anything I've ever worked on. And I'm really proud of what it says. And people loved it when they did see it. In the theater, it killed. When it tested, it scored through the roof. The re reviews were great. But I try to have a long view about it, which is just make something you're proud of. And then it just bounces around all of these platforms for the rest of your life. And you just want it to be that when you see it up somewhere, you're glad it's there. Up next, the headlines out of the newest Hollywood diversity study from UCLA. That's after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day -day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, Plug in and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Al Aist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Welcome back. It's time for my entertainment news chat with LAist 89.3 Morning Edition host Suzanne Watley. Well, not such a good morning at the Walt Disney Company, which might not be the happiest place on earth this week. What's going on? Well, Bob Iger promised to slash $5.5 billion in costs when he met with Wall Street analysts in February, and he's making good on that promise this week. He has started to sack some 7,000 employees. He told Disney staff that the cuts will come in a series of waves, probably finished by the end of the summer. My goodness. Do we know where the cuts are happening? Well, we know 
know where they're happening and where they're not happening. So first, where they're not is probably theme parks. Theme parks have rebounded incredibly well post-pandemic. Attendance is way up. Ticket prices are as well, but the money is coming in from theme parks. I think if you look closer to home, that's where you would see a lot of cuts coming. And there are a lot of cuts in departments that Bob Iger's brief successor, Bob Chapek, put in place before he was fired last year. So I think if you look at Marvel Entertainment, uh, there have been some serious cuts there. There have been a, is a whole department called Creative Acquisitions that was closed down. There's a metaverse company that has nothing to do with everything, everywhere, all at once that was cut. Uh, Hulu, Disney TV Studios, Freeform, you're going to see cuts at all of those departments. Um, and it's going to be brutal. I mean, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. My goodness. Well, let's change gears here. I know you would probably like to forget about the Oscars at this point, but apparently you are not quite ready. Why is I, that? I can't quit them. Um, <laughs> but I just can't quit you, Oscar. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain, but I'm going to start with a clip from the ceremony that was earlier this month. And the Oscar goes to everything, everywhere, all at once. I think you know who that is. That's Harrison Ford announcing Best Picture. And that went to, as you know, everything, everywhere, all at once. So it's seven Oscar wins, I would argue, proves that movies with diverse casts can win a lot of awards. But there's another lesson, and it was just kind of reinforced by a new study that came out this week. And that is that movies with diverse casts can win a lot of money, too. They can take home a lot of money, and I think the more diverse movies are, the better they tend to perform, at least according to the study. And we know that because Everything Everywhere All at Once held such broad appeal across so many demographic categories, it was the best-performing art house title of last year. It grossed more than $76 million domestically, and I am guessing it's not alone? It is not alone. I mean, obviously, those are not Top Gun numbers, but they're pretty good. So the report is by UCLA's Hollywood Diversity Report, and it basically shows in really direct numbers how that plays out. So first, the methodology. They look at the top 200 grossing films worldwide last year based on ticket sales. And then they look at the top 100 films on streaming platforms based on audience. These are just English language films. And when you look at the theatrical movies, movies that play at the multiplex, those with casts between 31 to 40% minority had the highest median box office. And the opposite is true or untrue, depending on how you want to define it. Movies that were less than 11% minority cast had the lowest median box office returns. And the same is true on streaming platforms. The more diverse, the more popular, the less diverse, the less popular. And this must explain, John, why Hollywood has done such a fantastic job casting a range of actors, especially folks of color. Yeah, that's happened. Not. (laughs) Um, UCLA found that people of color received fewer than 22% of leading roles in last year's top 200 movie releases. That compares to the U.S. population, which is about double that of of people who are minority. And that's down in the movies from 27% the previous year. So minority casting is actually going backward in Hollywood. Still, the share of non-white leading actors has grown over the last 11 to 12 years. It's more than doubled, but the last year it did go down materially. But if you look at streamers like Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple, Disney+, Plus, the numbers are better. About a third of those leading roles go to people of color. So streamers are doing better than the theatrical releases. And so what's the lesson coming out of this UCLA diversity report? I think it's pretty simple. Creating a wide, casting a wide range of people isn't just the right thing to do. 
morally, it's the right thing to do financially. And that's really noticeable when a movie opens at the box office. People of color bought the majority of opening weekend tickets for six of last year's top 10 theatrical releases, according to the UCLA study. So you can ignore that audience at your peril. I'll be right back with someone one degree from Kevin Bacon, actor-director Kira Sedgwick. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. For most of her professional career, Kira Sedgwick has been an actor. While Sedgwick has directed in episodic television and two made-for-TV movies, now she has directed her first feature film. It's called Space Oddity. After a tragic family loss, a young man tells his family he is preparing to travel to Mars. The film co-stars Kira's partner, Kevin Bacon. Kira, hi. Great to see you. And I'm looking forward to talking about your movie. Thank you so much. Thrilled to be here. Um, There is, in the Olympics, if you're doing diving, a degree of difficulty. I don't know if it goes from one to four or whatever it is, but the higher the difficulty, the harder the dive. And I have the same rule for movies and executive producers. The more executive producers there are, the harder it was to get the movie made. I lost count at 15. Maybe there are more. But uh, if you use the Olympic executive producer degree of difficulty rule, this was not an easy movie to get financed. It was not an easy movie to get financed. Yeah. Which is kind of, I don't know why it continued to shock me, even though we got no's from so many people, because I just thought, this is such a beautiful script. This is actually about something. This takes you on this emotional journey. It's funny. It's sad. It's hopeful. Like, what's the problem? (laughs) What was the problem when you were shopping it around? Was there a common, you know, excuse or what what did they say? I think what people said was it's execution driven. And I thought, are they kidding? Isn't everything execution driven? I mean, I was so confused by that comment. I mean, I think that people really loved the script, but I don't, maybe execution driven is, I don't know if she can direct it and I don't know if she can get a decent cast. I mean, I think that's probably the, you know, as I see you nodding your head, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling less alone in the I world. Think, I think execution <laughs> driven is code for, we don't think you can pull this off. Yeah. So in the face of so many no's, what made you convinced that it still had to be a yes for you? Because I feel like it has a lot of relevance because it is a movie about something. And and I think it has relevance because it's very entertaining because you 
are really taken on an, an emotional journey, as I mentioned, and and you get to have all the feels, and yet it's about important things like depression, like loss, like climate, um, like why is this 24-year-old wanting to go to Mars in the first place? And for me, it's very much a story about how do we fall back in love with being alive? How do we fall back in love with being um, on this, this earth and knowing that they're even with all the struggles and even with loss and even with climate change and even with all of it, that the fight is worth fighting here on this planet. And to me, it had all that in a bag of chips. And I just thought, damn, I got to make this thing, you know? Rebecca Banner's screenplay appeared on the blacklist, which is Franklin Leonard's curated list of unproduced screenplays back, I think, in 2016. And I think it came to you I want to say even before the pandemic, was this one of those things that as you're trying to raise money and being told it is execution dependent, meaning we don't think you can make it, that that you are having to deal not only with putting together money, but also dealing with how are you going to shoot it as everything starts to shut down? Exactly. In March of 2020, we were location scouting on, you know, our own dime. and I found Wickford, uh, it was the perfect town for the movie. And of course, then the world shut down and we didn't, we, we were going to make it that summer and we weren't obviously able to for another year. But really, I think that yes, trying to, trying to raise the money will always be difficult. But the truth is, you know, having an extra year to prep in my mind and to cast it well and to try to get the money was helpful and also to dial in the script more and more and more. When you think about directing, does it feel like all of your work as an actor and directing in television led you to this moment? Do you wish you'd started earlier or does it feel like it was the right time and it needed to wait? Yeah, it's so funny, right? I don't look back and regret that I didn't start earlier, but boy, I waited an awfully long time. I mean, I I directed for the first time when I was 50. Um, What I felt like when I directed for the first time, you know, seven or eight years ago was, wow, this is what I've been preparing to do. That whole crazy acting thing was the thing I was, you know, doing to prepare me for what I really should be doing, which is directing. Um, but the truth is, I think that my secret sauce is my acting, is is all the history that I've had. So uh, I think those things are are ultimately great gifts and how wonderful to start something, quote unquote, new when you're 50. I mean, what a gift. Like, who gets that, you know, and 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 to be a bigger part of the storytelling, something that I've always loved to do as an actor where you're only one small part and suddenly you're in charge of the whole thing and in charge of what the audience sees. At every moment, it like it couldn't have come at a better time, really. One of the difficulties of working during the pandemic is casting, that you may not be meeting people in person. You might be casting over Zoom and and you might be casting individually and just crossing your fingers that when people come together, they have some sort of rapport or chemistry. How difficult is that when you are casting virtually and what were your workarounds? Right, exactly. Boy, that is a really good question and one that I didn't trouble myself with too much going into it. It was looking at tape and not reading people. You know, Um, I didn't audition these young actors and I got really lucky. So I think it was really difficult and it was a lot of cross your fingers and hope a lot. 
When you were casting the actor who plays the father in this film, did he go all prima donna and said, I'm not auditioning, I'm just taking an <laughs> offer? What were those conversations? I know. It was impossible. For, peop- for people impossible. who don't know, who who plays that that character? Kevin Bacon plays the father in the film. And we had another actor. Um, Is this true? Did you have another actor? Yes, yes, we did. We had another actor. And I'll tell you why I didn't ask him first. And it really is that I just didn't want to keep going to that well. Uh, He was in my first movie, Story of a Girl. And I just thought, I don't want him to feel like, wow, you know, she can't get anything done on her own. So she needs me. When I asked him, he said, I was wondering what took you so long. <laughs> did he did he know that so, he was the second choice? Did you let him know that? Or is yes. that a secret? Oh, yeah, okay. oh, of course he knew because like, he knew who the first choice was and who, you know, loved the script and got back to me right away. And, you know, all the things, because, of course, when you're married and there's two two actors there, you're riding every wave with them. You know, by the time this interview airs, this report will have come out from UCLA's Hollywood Diversity Report. They have a new study about who gets hired in front of and behind the camera. Let me tell you the numbers for female directors. They're not good. This looked at the top 200 English language films of 2022 based on global box office. And the percentage of those films that were directed by women, drum roll please, 14.6%. Um, so you can do the math. That's 1.5 out of every 10 theatrical films had a Mm. female director. Um, Mm. and maybe that comes back to this whole idea of this movie being execution dependent, that there is Mm. such a built-in bias against women making movies and women, obviously, well, not everybody knows this. They're more than 50% of the population, 50.1 or something. And yet we're still where we are, where only 14.6% of the jobs go to women. If you look at budgets, too, it's like a huge Mm. drop off that women, when they get hired, get very small budgets and not a lot of resources. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's very depressing. It's it's disheartening. And I want to say that I'm able to direct and I directed my movie and I continue to direct TV And I feel lucky and I think that we can all do better. And I do think there's an inherent bias. And I think we we very much live in a patriarchy, but that's not new to anybody, at least not for women. It's not new. The thing that upsets me most of all almost is that, you know, so a woman can be considered a great director. But if she makes a movie that doesn't do well, it's really hard for her to get another shot, whereas men continue to fail upwards. So I find that that disheartening and discouraging, too. And then they wonder why women are risk averse. You right. know what I mean? Right. So, the director's jail it, sentence is much longer for women. Your movie is going to go into, I, I don't know what this is, a movie theater? What Have you heard of that? A multiplex? <laughs> How did that come about? And I suspect that's important to you. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's only a week, even if everybody in the world went, they would not extend, um, which is a little sad, but it's a communal experience. It's a huge part of why I do what I do is is to is to exercise empathy and, and exercising empathy in a group is one of our greatest assets as humans. So to me, the having that opportunity is is wonderful, even though it's small, you know, it's small, but mighty. And this film for me is talks about a lot of really important things. And I love the idea that people are going to get to experience it together. When you leave a movie or a TV show as a performer, you often take away something professionally, artistically, however you want to define it. When you left this movie, did you take away something personally? 
Oh, of course. I mean, a hundred percent. Um, I, I like to feel like the things that I am giving my time to serve a greater purpose and the greater good. The messages of the movie are very much the way that we made the movie. We treaded very lightly on that flower farm. We treaded lightly on that earth. I feel more in love with the planet than I ever have. And it may just be me, but there is a name check for Elon Musk and Richard Branson. And I think we can say, by extension, sending billionaires into space, which is help the people on the planet first before you start taking off into the atmosphere. Exactly. Mars is uninhabitable. We have heaven on Earth here. We can breathe the air. We have sunshine. We have power. We have beauty. You know, let's let's fight the good fight here. Sounds good. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And really, I'm very honored to be talking to you. So thank you for that. Space Oddity is in theaters for a week starting March 31st. And before we go, I want to thank all the listeners who donated to our spring member drive. Elias made its million-dollar goal in the 11th hour of the fundraiser because of your support. And for those who don't know, this podcast is powered by listeners like you, donating as little as $5 a month. And we can only keep making more episodes like this one with your partnership. So support us now by donating at Elias.com forward slash join. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. With special thanks this week to John Raby and Donald Paws. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.